This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, young disciples Lucas Rose, Joseph Kaiser, and Brady Stevenson give a survival guide for young Catholics. One body stewarding God's creation. Why doesn't God answer prayer? One body. What is the path to happiness? One body, stewarding God's creation. Well, let's find out. Lucas begins the discussion. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Lucas, and we are at Divine Mercy Radio, and this is the One Body Show. This week, we would like to talk about uh, survival guide for young Catholics. We realize that we have continued to get younger and younger people listening to our station, and so... We know that it can be very difficult for you to want to continue your faith, especially when you get to college. So I brought in two people that I think would be the best people possible in the entire city of Hayes to talk about how to keep young Catholics coming to Mass, practicing their faith, and loving the Lord. So uh, to begin, I want to introduce those two. First one is Joseph Kaiser, and he is the team leader for the Focus Missionaries here on Fort Hayes' campus. So, Joseph, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, Lucas. Yeah, I am here at my, my first year in Hayes. This is my third year on staff with the Fellowship of Catholic University Students. I'm originally from Pensacola, Florida, also known as the Pearl of the South, <laughs> and went to school at the University of South Alabama, and have been serving the last three years here in Kansas, the first two at Wichita State, and then this, like I said, is my first year as the team director at Fort Hayes. That's awesome. That's so great. I also brought with me Brady Stevenson. He is the president for the campus ministries here at Fort Hayes. Hello, Brady. Hi, Lucas. Yes. Hi, my name is Brady Stevenson. I am the president of Catholic Disciples on Fort Hayes' campus. It's, it's the youth Catholic group there on campus. I've been in Hayes now for four years. This is my last year of undergrad, and I'm hoping to stay another year for my master's. So happy to be here. Awesome. Yeah, and I love it. I, I Brady has been someone who I've gotten to know throughout college. I just recently graduated from Fort Hayes. I work here now at Divine Mercy Radio, and I know Catholic Disciples was what survived me in college. You know, I, I, didn't, I wouldn't have survived college without the Catholic Disciples ministry and the friendships that I grew there and the love of Christ that I had. So to introduce our topic, obviously we're talking about a survival guide for young Catholics. Uh, we are all young Catholics, all very young Catholics, and we know that there's a lot of wisdom to be had in the Catholic Church, and most specifically, having a relationship with God. And so we want to discuss that. We want to give our own personal testimony to it, and we also want to hopefully give good advice so that any young Catholic that might listen to this would have good tools to continue their faith through college and even into their young adult life. So to begin, I wanted to quote from the Catechism. It's in the first section. It's paragraph 27, very simply speaking. The desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. That, to me, is so impactful. This is literally the second paragraph into the first section of the catechism and I think it's so important for us to understand that our desire for God is there whether or not we're, we believe in God whether or not we're Catholic even if we're not even Christian if we're atheists God created us and if we're doubting the faith just remember he created us and he put something in our heart that makes us want to come back to him 
we inser- we inherently search for him always and so to discuss that we kind of have it broken up into two different sections the first one is happiness slash fulfillment uh, or spiritual fulfillment more specifically and then the second one is cultural rebellion because i think as catholics we are so countercultural. we're so different than the rest of any type of culture in the united states or, or, or worldwide that we want to rebel intentionally against the bad things that culture has to offer and understand that uh, it isn't the same for us as it is for the rest, but not just rejecting it completely and getting rid of it, but bringing ourselves into it to make it better. So I want to turn it over, first of all, to Joseph to talk about the transcendentals. Yeah, so the first of these topics, thank you, Lucas, are the transcendentals. So just a a quick refresher on the transcendental, what those are, where they come from. So the transcendentals are these three kind of experiences that happen to us that we get from deep, deep into the history of Western philosophy. So we get these from the early Greeks, Plato, Aristotle, coming all the way down to us today. So those experiences are one, beauty, two, goodness, three, truth, beauty, goodness, and truth. And so these three experiences, Plato is going to say, are kind of these things that where the word transcendental comes from are a part of our experience as human beings, but they sort of transcend what is easy maybe to articulate. So we've got three water bottles here, right? And we can see the water bottles. We know what they are. We can understand them. We can pick them up. But there's this other sort of thing that's going on in the room, right? This search for goodness, this search for truth that seems sort of beyond our basic capabilities to describe, but it certainly seems to be here in a way that's intuitive. So this, this, these ideas kind of go on through classic philosophy from Plato, Aristotle. They're, they're kind of something that are always being discussed. And I just want to briefly kind of bring us up to speed on how they developed in philosophy and then maybe make it a little bit more personal. So uh, they, they eventually get to this point where, you know, Kant is also describing them on a very serious basis and, and kind of bases his philosophy around them. And they, what happens with philosophy is it always seeps down into our normal life. So these ideas that we have this idea of kind of old men sitting around in, in chairs. We're young men sitting around in chairs, but <laughs> old men sitting around in chairs philosophizing, right? But then those ideas start to become a part of our actual life. So basically, the, it goes through Plato, it goes through Kant. And by the time that we get to this, this theologian that maybe you've heard of before, Hans Urs von Balthasar, in the 20th century, he kind of realizes that this pattern has occurred specifically in the way that we are catechizing and teaching the faith, where we have started to give people first truth, then goodness, and then beauty. So what that would look like is, here is the truth of this doctrine. You might think of something like whether or not you're supposed to drink or what temperance looks like in drinking. There's the truth of it. You're not supposed to get drunk, right? There's a goodness. Well, that way you're always able to show yourself in a respectable way. And then there's a beauty, which comes with the actual ability to enjoy and freely and temperately enter into this good of the earth, which is alcohol, right? So what Balthasar says, which is, this is a key point, is that we've kind of reversed these. So the typical way that we should receive these in the way that Jesus presents them is in this order, beauty, goodness, and truth. 
But what we've done instead, in sort of grasping after the rules in this sort of pharisaical way, is we just present people, and maybe this has happened to you before, the truth, right? You can see it. So abortion is wrong, or you shouldn't drink underage, or all this stuff, sort of these, these truth bombs going off without first giving people the, the beauty and goodness behind that. So why is that a problem? Well, to illustrate that, kind of want to show forth what it would look like, maybe with something that we're, we're all familiar with. So I'm engaged right now. I'm going to be married this, this June, which I'm very excited for. <laughs> and in coming to pursue Faith, Faith is her name, there were things that attracted me to her. But, you know, as a, as a man, something that attracted me first, of course, is her beauty, right? Physical beauty, yes. And beauty of, of mind, of body, of soul, right? And th- there's a beauty that attracted me to Faith. And that inspired me to move and to ask her out, right? Initiated the movement within me. So from that beauty, I then go to, to take her on dates, right? And discover her goodness. What is good about faith? What is good in her heart? How does she see the world, right? And from all of that, as we are going towards the vocation of marriage, there begins to be an acknowledgement and a more full embodied knowledge of the truth that is faith, Right? who she is, how she sees the world. And I come to know the truth of who faith is at the the very core of her being, right? So it's beauty attracts, inspires, goodness draws in further. Truth is sort of this meeting of the two in one flesh that happens in marriage, right? So when when we think about the transcendentals, beauty is the thing that draws so many of us into to what Lucas just read in paragraph 27, this desire for what is sort of transcendent and above ourselves. So just real quickly, last thing on this, and then we can kind of move on. But the the thing that first inspired me, this was when I was in college at the University of South Alabama, the Harvard of the South. (laughs) We, uh, you know, I had this experience of just being so caught up in the things of the world, right? So caught up in the social circles that I was in, and just all of the typical things that a college freshman would be caught up in. And there was this experience that I had in my literature classes of what I call falling in love with lady literature. I always say that she was my first love. And for the the first time ever, when I was taking American literature from 1900 to 1945 with Dr. Iskowski, for the first time ever, for 50 minutes on a Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I wasn't thinking about what girl that I was going to take on dates or how I was going to manage my homework and social situations and all this stuff. But I was thinking about something that was outside of myself. We had a class that was communing around this central thing that was beautiful that had the power to draw me out of myself, right? And I think that that is the, the sort of baseline of how we come to encounter Jesus, Right, is we have to be drawn out of ourself so that we can be present to the heart and then return to ourselves with Jesus at our side. But they have to draw us out of this sort of focus on just the things of the world, on not having an eternal perspective. So the transcendentals draw us into an eternal perspective. But we're, we're limited very much by this sort of baseline love of the things of the world. And, and so that is the beginnings of our conversion. So, Brady, I think that you're going to talk to us a little bit about the the inability to be satisfied by things of the world, what that looks like before encountering the transcendental. Yes, yes. Thank you, Joseph. So, uh, I wanted to touch on the inability, again, to be satisfied by those worldly things. Um, so often in college, 
we get here and that's when we're really tested and we truly figure out the things that we had um, in our mind as what was going to fulfill us in college isn't actually fulfilling us. And some people take with that and they grow and some people let that consume them um, and go the opposite direction. So uh, really, in, in my mind, you know, people don't freely choose to do things simply because it's going to be unfulfilling. Like we don't we don't go out on the weekends and get drunk because we think it's going to be unfulfilling. We do it because we think it's going to provide some sort of fulfillment. So in essence, it's not such a matter of, of choice in, in that sense. It's more of a matter of confusion into what actually is fulfilling. You know, media and society today tells us that money and power and sex is what's going to fulfill us if we can get to this certain point in life, if we can make this amount of money, um, if we can have this many friends or this girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever it may be, that's what's going to provide us with fulfillment. And as we come to learn when we're on our own and we're truly tested, we don't have our parents guiding us as we do in high school or even before that. We're, we're poised to make our own conclusions and, and draw our own inferences from that. So we have this idea and we think that, okay, now that I'm in college, I have the freedom to go and pursue what I believe is truly going to be fulfilling. And so what do we do? We go out on the weekends, we party, we sin and consistently sin. And we think that this freedom that we have is what is bringing us the fulfillment. And the confusion comes into play because the idea of freedom that we usually come into college with isn't what freedom actually is. Freedom isn't the ability to do whatever you want. It's the ability to exist and to love God and to choose the right thing. And so by knowing that, then we can, again, recognize, okay, this isn't being fulfilling. This isn't bringing me the joy that, that I'm searching for, and I need to find that in God. But there isn't the instant gratification that we think that we find in, in the unfulfilling things in searching for it in Jesus Christ. So we're not always going to go sit in prayer in the chapel and say, oh, there you are, God, you're shining down upon me. I feel all of your love and all of your grace. Whereas you go to a party and you see all your friends or you, you do all these things and there's, there's that instant, okay, you know, this is fun. This is great. My people care about me. There isn't that instant physical acknowledgement that what you're doing is fulfilling. And so it's easy to get disheartened. And that's why, again, having a strong background uh, or a strong backbone in uh, the campus center or focus missionaries or whatever it may be is important to get you through that learning process. There, there's many different things that have been proposed to youth and, and to uh, the society in general that is gone to go away from that false idea of freedom. And one of those things is Exodus. Um, Exodus 90 is, is something that uh, men do to get away from that idea of freedom. And a lot of people view Exodus as this list of things that I can't do. But in all reality, it's, it's showing you the freedom that you have when you get rid of the things that are actually tying you down. Um, you, you're no longer allowed to scroll through social media for hours upon hours during the day. You're no longer allowed to watch movies. You're no longer allowed to, to take hot showers, which is something that we, you know, take so for granted. Uh, you're, you're forced to be in a holy hour every day. Um, there, there's these little things that 
you have going into it, you're like, okay, I am going to be locked down. I can't do anything. And then you start the program or you start giving these things up and you're realizing the freedom that I thought I had before and being able to spend hours upon hours on social media wasn't fulfilling me. I, I continued to go back to this and you would think that at a certain point I would reach the fulfillment and I wouldn't need that anymore, but I kept going back. Whereas with not having those things anymore, you come to find out pretty soon that everything that I thought was important no longer takes priority. My prayer life is, is at the forefront. The, the relationship I have with my friends and my family, and whether that be you know your wife or um, your husband or your parents when you're at college, um, that's what takes priority. And you begin to realize, okay, there's, there's so many things I was letting fill up my time that I thought was freedom for me that was actually locking me down and keeping me from truly growing and coming closer to Christ. And I want to close up this segment with, with a quote from C.S. Lewis um, from his Mere Christianity. Which is a beautiful book, read multiple times, love every second of it. He says, if I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So with that, I think he hits it, uh, hits, hits the nail on the head at the very end of that. These good things that, you know, you touched on um, with, with alcohol and temperance, there's, there's so many good things on the world, but they're never going to fully fulfill us. They're never going to make us feel like that's enough, but they are there to keep us striving for more. God, God wouldn't want to give us something on this earth that would fulfill us because we'd never have a desire for what comes afterwards in, in eternity. And so he gives us these good things in the hopes that they bring to light what we truly should be striving for in the relationship with God and, and in those tough times and not having that instant gratification and in going into the chapel every day or in sitting in mass or in the bad things that happen to us, the different trials we go through. He gives us this, those things as encouragement to say, this is what you have to look forward to. This is who I am. I give you these things because I love you. And I give you these things because I want you to continue to strive closer to me. So, Absolutely. That was great, Brady. I appreciate the witness, especially. That was such a good way of just viewing life in general. I think that's something that, as a young man, I've dealt with. I'm sure, Joseph, you've—I mean, we're all three doing Exodus together right now, so we all know the, the struggles yep. that are. But uh, that, yeah, I think that's great. And I think that one thing that we've learned— in this is that we have to rely on the sacraments in all of this, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And Joseph, I know you want to you you have some beautiful testimony to the sacraments, and would would you please share those with us? Yeah, and I, I think Brady, one thing that was really sticking about sticking out about what you said is just this idea of this false notion of freedom mm-hmm. that kind of gets fed to us. And something that is so beautiful about our experience with the Exodus is your desires start to be purified. Right, so I can I can say pretty much that I do still desire warm showers. I can say that for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but yep. I don't really desire sweets in the same way I did at the beginning of Exodus or mm-hmm. to relax into YouTube or something like that in the same way that I did at the beginning of Exodus, right? right. And so what happens as we go along in the Christian life is our desires 
become purified as we get closer to Jesus, right? And, and actually what you're saying, and this is going to tie into the, the thing on the sacraments, but it reminds me of this example that, that Christopher West always uses. I love Christopher West. And he talks about the three different diets that we have, right, that people kind of go through life with. And the, the three diets that he talks about are the starvation diet, the fast food diet, and the banquet. So we have the starvation diet, which almost nobody really does, but this is, I'm not going to consume anything. I'm not going to try to have any pleasure in the world or anything like that. And then we have the fast food diet, which is a lot about what you were describing, Brady, this sort of idea of, well, I'll just settle for what's most readily available Mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll try to get pleasure. Right. So you can think about this just with a simple example, like chocolate cake. I'm going to just get dessert because I'm kind of hoping that it will make me a little bit happier or just inspire a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm willing to settle for that. Or the banquet, which is holding out for the best things, right? Those transcendentals, those things that draw us out of ourselves that kind of go above and beyond what some sort of worldly pleasure can, can satisfy, right? So there is some base level good in a sweet, like a piece of chocolate cake, but it, it doesn't do the trick to, to leave us lastingly happy. So what does do the trick, right? That's, that's sort of the question. Brady was saying, well, doesn't it bother you that these people who are so into their faith, so devoted to their faith, are not Catholic? And, and here's kind of what has struck me as I've thought about that, right? Is that the thing that is so beautiful is that they have so much joy and energy for the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? There is joy and energy in what they're saying. But the thing is that at the end of the day, when the joy, when the energy aren't there, when I can't muster up my own joy, my own spirit, my own energy, what happens to me then? And, th- and that's a problem that you're always going to find in the Protestant church. Well, I'm having trouble connecting with God. And, and, this, and th- there can be reasons for that. But here's the truth, right? That in his church, God has promised that he will always be faithful. So whether or not we feel it, there is actual efficacious grace that's poured out at the sacrament of communion. There's actual efficacious grace that's poured out in reconciliation, right? Every single time that we approach these sacraments, there is actual efficacious grace in every one of the seven sacraments, baptism, confirmation, marriage, holy orders, anointing of the sick. The efficacious grace will be there because God has promised to be faithful regardless of how we're feeling. Uh, There was a study that went out that said something like, I can't remember the exact number, but it was over half of all Catholics don't believe that Jesus is really present in the Eucharist. Do you think that that idea in, in you know, the, the, the disbelief in, in that presence stems from the fact that people can go and find the fulfillment that they're searching for in something that even it being seemingly so good in you know, a, a video of that or, or a podcast of that um, can draw detriment to the church itself and the sacraments? And, and, you know, Do you want to answer, Joseph? Yeah, I think I think what I would say to that, right, is that the these things that are good, right, again at the end of the day have to be in service. And so what you're asking is kind of do you think that they serve as a detriment or do you think that they could be detrimental? Right. Uh, so what is detrimental, right, is the overindulgence in those things right. and the okay. attachments to to maybe the feelings that they bring or the clarity and understanding that they bring, mm-hmm. right? But 
ultimately, th- this is the gift that we have in the church, right, that Protestants don't have, is that we have somebody who's willing to teach us what the objective order is, <laughs> right? So we don't, we don't have to guess at, we're, we're not in the business of doing this sort of guesswork of where is the order. No, the most important thing, right, is the, the Eucharist. That is the source and summit of our faith. So we don't have to guess if I feel better after receiving the Eucharist or after watching a Father Mike video. So in, in the same way, Brady, when, when we go back to talking about the diets, right, it's not that a double quarter pounder with cheese is bad. It's that 20 years right. of two McChickens for 250 is bad. <laughs> it, am I allowing, the, I think uh, just a good question to ask ourselves, right? Uh, am I allowing these resources to whet my appetite for God or satisfy my appetite for God, right? Because, you know, something else that, that C.S. Lewis says is, he, he says, like children making mud pies in a slum, we are far too easily pleased. He says that in an in a essay elsewhere, not in Mere Christianity. But so, so uh, just like that, we're, we're far too easily pleased with videos, with, with these resources that are made for our good, but ultimately they're not supposed to be satisfying our appetite for God. They're supposed to whet our appetite for God. That's going to be met in prayer in the sacraments. So prayer has been something that's been a very eye-opening thing for me lately. Like Joseph was saying with the transcendentals, it, it's, you know, you got to come in with beauty. You have to be, a, like, aroused by the beauty of, of the faith uh, to get to truth. But for me, my faith journey has been the opposite. I've, I've been in that camp of the truth is what made me want to be Catholic, and only recently have I really discovered a beautiful spirituality. And so, for me, I've always wondered about prayer because I've thought, you know, I ask for things in prayer quite often. You know, I do my petitionary prayer. And especially in college, it seemed like three quarters of the time or more, my prayers did not get answered. And so that made me wonder, like, why? Like, why even pray? Like, what's the point in it? Is it even working? Like, is any of that good? And then I I read this article not very long ago from Word on Fire, and it was talking about the difference between a gift and a present. A present is something we give someone, and we hope that it does something good for them. We think it's good for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to use the example of workout equipment. Worst gift you could possibly give someone because you're assuming something <laughs> of them, but it's a present. You're giving it to them in the hope that they would gain something from it. Whereas a gift is something that w- we actually need. If I were to give you a gift, it would be something you actually need and would actually benefit you and would be good. So. The difference now, when we're thinking about prayer, God only gives gifts. He will never give you a present unless that present is actually something that would benefit you, if it would be a gift, right? And so we have to acknowledge in prayer that not everything that we ask for is going to be given to us, and praise God for that. Because I look back on those 75% of prayers that weren't answered, and I praise God that those weren't answered, because those are such, they were such terrible prayers that in the way that my life has been played out since those prayers, those prayers would not have been good for me. They would have not led me to the life that I'm being able to live right now, and in His will. If it's not going to be in accordance with His will, then He's not going to give it to us, and that's a beautiful thing. And I think the best example of this, and I, I might blow people's mind to think about this, but the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus asks for that cup to be passed. 
right? He he says if if I can avoid crucifixion, you know, if just the shedding of my blood here and sweating it out is enough to save salvation, let the cup pass from me, Lord. But if it be your will, let it be done. So God himself prayed and didn't have his prayer answered because of his reservation to his father's will. And I think that's such an important thing for me to un- that I had to understand and that we all have to really understand because I know a lot of people might want to leave the church because they feel like their prayers aren't being answered. So is there even a God if prayers aren't answered? We praise God that our prayers aren't answered because if they all were and we got exactly what we asked for, our life would probably be disastrous. But I would, to add on to that, I would say that there are times that we are given what we want to learn what we truly need. Mm-hmm. I, I, can, I can name numerous instances in my life where I got what I had been praying for, but then I quickly learned after I had gotten that what I really needed from that. Not, I, didn't, I didn't need what I had been given there. What I really needed was this, or what I, what I needed was to go into prayer. You know, I, I wanted the ability to get a great score on my test, but then come my final, what I really wanted was the peace and the discipline to sit down and study. That way, come final time, even though I had gotten a good score on this test, I had crammed everything in. I didn't remember anything on my final, and... I look back and I'm like, I should have been praying for the grace to learn to study and to take the fruits of a bad score on the first test to turn my grade around at the end. Um, which again, a, a very, very small example, but I think that can apply to a lot of things. And I think we have good examples in some of the most, uh, what we would deem or what, what society would deem the most successful people in the world is these people that have made all this money and money is no longer an object. And then they come out to say on their deathbed that I was never truly happy. You know, the money, the, the money didn't, didn't bring anything to me. Um, what I had been praying for, even if it wasn't a prayer, what I had been searching or seeking for so long wasn't really, w- what I had gotten wasn't, wasn't what I was needing. You know, I, I needed, I needed love. I needed a relationship with my family, not this. And I think, you know, God gives us the grace to realize those things, no matter how late it is in life to come to that revelation and, and, you know, asking for mercy on our deathbed and, and come time for eternity. So. Yeah. And I, I think that, that is something that is the the joy of the Christian life, right? It's, it's from the world's perspective. We evaluate our life through this lens of, do I have enough money? Do I know what's going to happen next to me, mm-hmm. right? Do I know how I'm going to turn out? Do I know if I'm going to succeed or fail? But if, if we're Christians, we're real Christians, that means that we are living in the Father's love, mm-hmm. right? We're living in it. So the, the one thing basically that we can be sure of there is is that, Everything that's happening to us is for our eternal good, for our eternal good. That doesn't mean that everything that's happening to us is for our our planetary good, like right. it's good here on earth and feels good and is nice, right? But we actually can know and be assured in Christ that if it's happening to us and we're Christians, that it's the best thing for us eternally. Mm-hmm. And, and that is a surety that the world just doesn't have. Right. It's always asking what's next, what's the next step, where do I have to go from here? Mm-hmm. The Christian doesn't ask that question. It just says, Lord, how can I be more conformed to your will? Yeah, I'm, I'm here in the present and I'm trusting 
that this is the best thing for me eternally. Mm -hmm. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. We'll be right back with more about the survival guide for young Catholics from Lucas Rose, Joseph Kaiser, and Brady Stevenson. We're back on One Body Stewarding God's Creation. Lucas Rose, Joseph Kaiser, and Brady Stevenson. The Survival Guide for Young Catholics. So we're back here with the One Body Show. Uh, We are talking about a survival guide for young Catholics. And we just got done talking about the transcendentals, our inability to be satisfied with worldly things, the sacraments and prayer, and that all kind of under the umbrella of happiness and spiritual fulfillment, which is what we're obviously longing for. And so the second segment, we want to tackle more of this cultural rebellion, uh, where we are not of the world, we are, we're in it, but we're not of it. And so, Brady, if you would like to go ahead and lead us off on that topic. I'll start out the topic by a G.K. Chesterton quote. Um, he says, what is wrong with the world is that we do not ask what is right. And to use that to dive into the topic, what is right? What, what do we deem as the right thing to do? Well, the church gives us a pretty clear, and God gives us a pretty clear answer of what that is. He gives us the Ten Commandments, and really we don't need much else other than that. If we stopped trying to nitpick at stuff, we wouldn't always try to find loopholes and get around. It, it's We have an innate knowledge of what is right. We, we've been gifted that. We've been given free will, but we also can tell right from wrong. Um, and with that being said, the cultural rebellion and what society has done and the, the way that um, the course has been for the past since human I life. Mean, so probably, yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, since, since humans have been around, uh, has been this idea of conformity and getting into what the broad majority is doing. Um, and conformity isn't necessarily a bad thing when you're surrounded by the right people. And I think that's huge for college. Um, that's a whole nother topic we could get into and in surrounding yourself with the right people and, and um, having a good friend group. But that is just a little piece of the puzzle as to what dictates what is right and wrong and how to approach um, doing the right things and getting away from what we consider a cultural rebellion. So I think it's funny every time I'm driving down the street, I seem to see one, one person that has a bumper sticker that says coexist on it. And I think there's, there's a lot of beauty, um, in the idea of coexisting and in the, the purpose behind the sticker. And there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of disruption and a lot of, um, turmoil in the world, especially today, um, that, that I think, Coexisting isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it, but it comes down to coexisting and not just accepting 
and conforming. We're, we're called to be disciples for others, to lead by example. And oftentimes it's easier to just go with the flow and do what everyone else is doing because then we don't face the judgment from them. Um, but if we don't set the boundaries of what is truth and what is right, then the idea of coexistence will eventually turn into a dictatorship or whatever we're trying to avoid. Yeah, because and I think the where you're getting at is this idea of tolerance. Right. 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 It's like this whole idea of just bland toleration. Mm-hmm. Coexistence is like you do you, I do me, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and leading into that, the truth and then there's tolerance and there can be too much of both and i think the most easy example is you know in in some parishes there's been times where there's been priests that have run people out of the parishes because the truth has been too much and so there needed to be okay well the church needs to change with the times and the the rules need to change to go along with what better suits society now and that's what's been happening since humans and that's why we're where we're at now with rioting and and all of this disagreement and our, our government and all the all of the the craziness that goes on with that to combat that we have to set the idea of truth we have to set a a foundational truth to grow and to improve from where we're at now if we don't have or accept uh the idea of a truth uh, if we don't if we don't tolerate the idea of a truth what will happen as a society is is the strong will overtake the weak and the ideas of the strong will again be inferred into the weak that, that that's what will happen i mean you, we can use our god-given gift as humans to r- deductively reason that if we don't accept some truth Eventually, whatever the broad majority decides is correct will be correct. And, that, and that's what happens in, again, dictatorships. You know, you've got one person that has all the power that, that is the, the strong and all of their views get pushed down on this. And, and no matter what you, you may think deep down inside, you do what they say. Okay, so with that, the church has a way to combat that and combat the learning process that it takes when you do get confirmed and become an adult and have to make your own decision um, as to the faith if if you want to continue to practice the faith and, and to love Jesus Christ in that way and that's where the tolerance comes into play there's there's a certain level of of tolerance that has to be present to allow people to grow and to learn because if all you have is truth uh, and we touched on this earlier in the, in the broadcast. If all you have is truth, if all you're saying is this is what's right and this is what's wrong, no one's ever going to listen to you. And there, there's a certain element of caring that has to be implemented into that, which is that tolerance to, to ever be a good disciple, to, to get that across. And I know Focus does a great job of this, but um, I can't remember who says it, but it, it's something along the lines of... Um, it's something along the lines of nobody cares about what you know until they know how much you care. To, to try and disciple somebody without showing them first that you care and that you love them is, is not going to get you anywhere. It's a false effort. You might as well stop there and, and backtrack. You, you, <laughs> you, know, you have to show them the reason for your, your judgment, in a sense, or the reason for the truth that you're giving them. And, and that's where the balance between truth and, and tolerance comes into play. Um, 
and that it would be easy to say you're doing that wrong you need to stop doing that but they don't care what you have to say because they don't think that you have their best interests in mind. They just think that you're saying it because you're a Christian and, and you believe this thing and they believe the other thing. Yeah, I, I think what you said, Brady, it is kind of cheesy, but it's so true. Just this idea of people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I think that's a lesson that I've learned on campus a couple of times the hard way. Yeah. You know, and sometimes we can just, well, I, I can get very caught up in my zeal for souls and zeal for mission. And, <laughs> you know, I live on 6th Street in Hayes, which is like Western Kansas most famous party street like you know so it's a uh, I can you know be zealous of like oh man I gotta get these people prepared to to lead those people on 6th street in Bible study blah 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 like all this stuff there's kind of this overzealousness but the truth is is that Jesus always sees the person that's directly in front of him right and he is focused on that person and through that love a a further love is initiated, right? What What is multiplied, what's passed on is the love between Jesus and this other person. And so if it's not love, if it's use, first of all, the other person is going to feel that every time, right? People, we can tell the difference between whether or not we're being loved or used. But secondly, if you're just using somebody to get to somebody else, they're going to be able to feel that. And at best that's what they're passing on so it, it does always have to start with with true love interest in the other that's what real discipleship is we come into college and we're going to be surrounded by people that even if they express the same beliefs as us they may not illustrate that or practice that in the way that we would expect it that's not uncommon there's going to be people that put a bad taste in your mouth for your own religion and for your own faith and beliefs and the answer to what what you may call that like bad religion i guess isn't no religion it's good religion so this idea of being in the world and not of the world as we should be um, can, again, cause many issues and cause the cultural rebellion that we see today. So there's two solutions that people deem necessary, and that's, again, what, what we talked about. The solution to bad religion isn't no religion, it's good religion. And Lucas is here to touch on how it's not the no religion way. That's not the way to combat what we consider bad religion, in quotations. Absolutely. And I think uh, there's a New York Times uh, columnist that actually wrote a book called Bad Religion. And he's super Catholic and awesome guy, Ross Douthat. Me and a professor of mine, we read him a lot. But yeah, I, one thing about like with the cultural rebellion, you know, I think and I don't know for anybody who's gone through Catholic education, especially Catholic high school, they get ready to leave, they graduate, and they're getting ready to go to college, and they think the cultural rebellion is to quit practicing their faith. They think, like, I've been force-fed this stuff for the last four years, last 12 years, whatever, in Catholic education or Catholic school systems, and they think that I'm going to be the rebel and I'm going to leave. Well, let me tell you this. It's not true. Uh, actually, you're part of the majority now. For every person who joins the church, six people leave. It's a very unfortunate statistic. Actually, they say 
if you were to break up the denominations of Christianity in the United States, the largest denomination would be former Catholics. Not Catholics, but former Catholics. This is all Bishop Barron stuff. I've heard him say these statistics a thousand times. But what I'm saying is don't be one of those elite. Be in the cultural rebellion. Like, care about your faith. Uh, and, and also know that this isn't new stuff. Like, this thing that you are experiencing, like this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. You know, the church isn't oblivious. Ready? Uh, but for this intimate and vital bond of man to God can be forgotten, overlooked, or even explicitly rejected by man. Such attitudes can have different causes. Revolt against evil in the world, religious ignorance or indifference, the cares and riches of this world, the scandal of bad example on the part of believers, currents of thoughts hostile to religion. Finally, the attitude of sinful man, which makes him hide from God out of fear and flee his call. If you are in any of those camps and you left the faith because of all of those, any of those possible things, come back. Please, please come back. The church acknowledges that these things are difficult. We're not here to condemn you for that. We want you to know we have answers. We care about it. These aren't things that, like, the church is 2,000 years old. These, like, seemingly existential issues that you might have with the world and with God, they're not new issues. You weren't the first one to think it, and, and it's okay. You know, it's, there's a level of humility in acknowledging the fact that we're all not the smartest person to ever walk the face of the earth, and that we all have had issues in our, our faith. And we've all had struggles where we were like, is this really what I want to do the rest of my life? Is this something I think I can even, for a second, comprehend being good at, even? It's easy to be good in the world. It's easy to be good at the world. Worldly things can come very easily. But that's not what Christianity is about. It's not about being easy. It's not about being the cool thing all the time. It's about being the thing that's right. It's about being the church that Christ himself founded. And it's about continuing to bring the truth and beauty and goodness of Jesus Christ to the entire world. It's our evangelical mission. It's what we were given at our confirmation. We were given the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Those are evangelical gifts. The, they were given to the apostles at Pentecost, but they were given to the apostles at Pentecost because they were being put in front of 3,000 people that were pagans, Jews, and irreligious, uh, whatever, Gentiles, that they had to portray the truth and beauty of Christ, who was crucified 53 days before that, and then rose three days after. And these are the people that did it, that they're preaching to. And you know what happened with those gifts, those beautiful gifts of the Holy Spirit that were brought to the, the apostles? They baptized all 3,000 of the people that were there to hear it. Continue to pray for those gifts and just remember that these are things that are necessary for our own salvation. And that it isn't, our faith is not just about, you know, ourselves. It, it's quite literally the opposite. It's all about giving, right? And it's about giving love. The, the, the two commandments that God gives us is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Or as one of my favorite guys to, to read, uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, first you need to love self like someone that you should care for, whether it be like an elderly parent or grandparent or something like that. 
uh, or spouse that's sick or, or child. We should love ourselves like we would love them. And then once we find out what that love is, we should love everyone with that and care about them that much. Thank you for tuning in to this week's One Body Stewarding God's Creation show on Divine Mercy Radio. And folks, heaven is unseen, and so are these airwaves. But if you can help these airwaves stay on the air and help save souls for eternity, then please go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio, KJDM 101.7, Lindsberg, Salina, KMDG 105.7, Hayes, KRTT 88.1, Great Bend, and KVDM 88.1, Hayes. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Somebody.